So I, uh, as I looked through some of my old Advent preaching series to supply for the Facing Bench, our newsletter that we do, I did note a common theme in many of them. Every year, I seem to mention my brothers and sisters around Christmas and how I miss them so. Some of you may remember last year that I, along with my parents, were surprised visited. I think it was Monday, December 23rd. I had been in town most of the day working potato chips. I was headed up the hill. Me and Christy then went over to the tunings. We had a uh, fun night with them. But as I'm at the tunings, I get a picture message on my phone from my mom. And I notice a picture of my dad and then my brother Aaron, who's usually in Georgia. They were playing a video game together in my parents' living room. So we go down there on Christmas Eve day, or I do, and I'm making some of my Oreo balls. Some of you know about my Oreo balls. And through the kitchen window, I then see my sister, Sina, and her family showing up. In fact, I remember my mom was in the bathroom when they arrived. So I got to help enjoy surprising my mom after I was surprised. And so my mom came out, and the first thing, she had to come and look at the Oreo balls I was making and maybe take a bite and didn't really notice anything else. And, of course, then my sister said, hi, mom, (laughs) to watch my mom turned around and, you know, do what she always does and yells and screams. (laughs) So Christy and I went down on Christmas Day, and then we got there in the morning. And uh, when we got there, my sister's husband, Jimmy, was absent. And my sister informed me that Jimmy's back was really hurting, and so he was downstairs laying down. This wasn't new. His back seems to go out on him from time to time. And she even went downstairs to check on him. Well, about noon, our family started receiving texts on our family conference, texts on our phone, and it's my older brother, Jeremy, and his family, actually seen as twin, and there are pictures of them around Cameo. <laughs> And so, without announcement, he arrived as well, and my brother-in-law, Jimmy, had actually gone to Lewiston to pick them up. So my whole family was home for Christmas. And I know my dad and mom had a fun but exhausting time with all three kids and all their families. Some of you may recall that they actually filled up about this half of the church when they came up on Sunday. One Sunday they were here. What I want to suggest to you is that the whole world is in this waiting. The whole world is in expectancy and desire to see the world as it should be. Everyone home for Christmas if you catch my drift. See, this Advent season, we're going really traditional. (laughs) As long as I've been around church, what we look at every Advent season is maybe Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke 1 and 2, maybe John 1 or Isaiah 9. Something referring to when Jesus was a baby or when an angel visited Joseph and Mary. But traditionally, churches at times would actually look to the second coming of Christ. The the last days. And as long as I've been here, which this past October was seven years, I don't think I've ever devoted much time to looking at the last days. I may have... uh, Mentioned it when scripture demanded it, but I've not taken time to focus on it. And believe it or not, I don't know about you, 2020 has felt like a good year (laughs) to just turn our direction there as we end it. And with that in mind, with 2020, 
it seems just fitting right now, if you're able to stand one more time to read our text, we've, I've been announcing it, but we're beginning our studies in the Christian Standard Bible, and we'll be in Romans 8, 18 through 25. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, and the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and to the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption to the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, this has been a year where you've tested our hope. Father, but our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the solid rock that you are, a place to anchor our souls. Father, you tell us in this passage that creation is groaning. We are groaning. We're waiting for something. And as we study it out, we pray that you would reveal to us what that something is and that it would be a something that we can add into our lives to make us not only finish this year because we have to, but to finish it in joy and celebration and anticipation of what you are going to do both here and now and in the years and in time to come. We thank you. We love you. We pray that it is your spirit and your voice that is speaking and not mine. We pray for open hearts, open ears, and an open mind to receive your word. We ask this all that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Coronavirus, George Floyd riots, defunding police, racism, quarantine and shutdown, personal illness, personal strife, cancer, death, presidential election. (laughs) It's been a hard year. My intellectual mind, my, my usual cynical mind, in the past has told me, and perhaps rightly so, that there is no difference between one year or another except the numbers changing where we write dates. <laughs> and so I've always been a Scrooge when it comes to New Year's resolutions, right? Like, what do you mean you'll repent next year of the sins you can repent of right now? <laughs> Very encouraging, I know. But this year, this year I've been... I've been waiting for 2021. 
I've been thinking that 2021 is going to somehow magically change our fallen world. I'll be honest with you. I love you. That's why I'm honest. I don't know if it is. (laughs) One thing I do know is that in 2020, even in 2020, I want to enjoy Christmas. I want to say to 2020, you took the rest of my year. Leave Christmas alone. In all the things that I just mentioned, coronavirus, riots, disease, there's a common denominator, really, for all the problems it's bringing us. There's an underlying festering sickness that brings it. Sin. It's the fallen world. It's the curse. Paul, in Romans 7 finishes that chapter rather defeatedly. He says something that I can totally identify with. He says, I don't get it. I don't do what I want to do. And I do things I don't want to be doing. (laughs) There is a spiritual side of me that really wants Jesus and the law. And then there's a fleshly side of me that keeps sinning. And thank God that Paul doesn't end there. Like, close the Bible... Glad you're encouraged. (laughs) But can you identify? I can identify. The world can identify. Even in the George Floyd riots and all these people thinking that simply because I'm white, I'm racist. (laughs) I don't think I am, but what I get is this. The frustration. Like we had a civil war. Why are there still people out there? Like, I don't think it's systemic, but that's just me. But I do wonder and I do lament, are people still really wrestling with this? The color of someone's skin? Like, really? Why does that even happen? I get the frustration. That's the frustration that Paul feels. I've been saved. I should be over this. (laughs) I mean, that's how I feel with my sins. Sometimes my confessions to God, I think, are almost angry. Angry at myself, like, really? I'm still sinning in this way? I'm still doing this? Like, I want to be done with that. But Paul, in Romans 8, he begins leaning into hope. He knows the problem, and the answer is Jesus. (laughs) Friends, the answer to 2020 is Jesus. Because there is no condemnation... For those in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't throw more laws, more rules, more regulations, more programs, more governmental incentives and more platforms at the problem. He goes to the problem itself and he uproots it. And he gives sinners new hearts. He gives sinning people the very spirit of himself and he lives through us. That's what we need. But we wrestle, we sin again, we mess up, sin gets done to us, the fall, the curse rears its ugly face, and we begin to suffer, and we find ourselves under the burden of it, all because there remains something to be done in our lives, doesn't there? Do you feel that angst, that waiting, that expectation, that... I'm on the verge of complete and total celebration in Christ, but something holds me back. Something keeps me from fully engaging. 
And Paul knows that and taps into that and he unfolds to us the second advent of Christ. And he says, verse 18, For I consider, yep, we're already going to have to stop. <laughs> the idea here is that I, I judge after careful deliberation. See, Paul is a studied teacher. He's a Christian with a testimony. He's a guy full of the law, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the knowledge of the Scriptures. And he's saying that he's looked around, he's taken stock of humanity, he's taken stock of the Christian experience, and he's saying, I consider, I've carefully studied and deliberated, it's been on my mind, and here are my findings, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. What Christ has done in us isn't done. We have sufferings. We're going to have sufferings. In fact, what we have to look forward to is not worth comparing. Do you hear that? Paul is not making a contrast here. He's not making a comparison here. He's saying, don't even begin to disclose your trials and wonder, will it get better? Because it will be so much better that your trials here and now will be oblivion. <laughs> Nothing. Unheard of, unthought of, unvoiced. There will be no compartment in your mind where you will open up and say, I remember those trials. <laughs> I imagine much of 2020 may be in that compartment for some of you. But that compartment will be gone. <laughs> because the glory that awaits us will be so overpowering, overwhelming and over-gratifying that nothing, absolutely nothing, for one nanosecond will occupy any far corner of your mind. We will be too enthralled with the glory that awaits us. We're going to read that this glory that awaits us involves everything. But Paul has made this first verse subjective to us, and so it seems appropriate to mention what Paul says in Philippians, namely chapter 3, verse 21. He says, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. I needed to hear that in 2020. The God who is overseeing 2020 right now has power that enables Him to subject everything to himself. For those of us yielding saints to Christ, this is who God is. So at the dusk of 2020, there is a thrill of hope. Now the sufferings of this world, at this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation, Paul continues eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. We have an audience, Christian. <laughs> Paul is personifying creation, creation here, and he's talking about everything in the universe except us, believers, <laughs> also except angels. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ did not die for them, Hebrews 2.16. And also except for those who followed the devil, 
the creation here, so is not referring to demons, believers or unbelievers, but everything else besides humanity and the angelic, is eagerly waiting and waiting with anticipation. Now these are two phrases here to separate meanings on a type of waiting. So let me just say that whenever you need two separate phrases to articulate how you're waiting, (laughs) my guess is you're a little bit weary with waiting. (laughs) Now we're talking about the weary world, but it's on the brink of rejoicing. The weary world is eagerly waiting. More to the point, it's waiting in suspense. And then waiting with anticipation, which that sounds a little bit more optimistic. You're waiting perseveringly. Like, the way, the world's gonna make it to the end. The suspense is killing the world, maybe quite literally, but it's gonna make it to the end. It'll persevere. But again, the creation is our audience. Our audience, the sons of God. Think about this, the account of creation in Genesis 1, When it uses the word made over and over, God made this, God made that, there are actually also two Hebrew words used. The first word used, I believe, is actually just used once in the beginning of our Bibles, in the beginning God created. In fact, most of our Bibles, I think, then demonstrate that, hey, there are two Hebrew words, because it uses created once, and then most Bibles will then begin to use the word God made. The maid in the rest of the account is like a prepare. Whenever you tell your kids to go make their beds, you weren't telling them to find wood, make a frame, kill some birds, stuff some feathers in a pillow. No. <laughs> you really wanted them to prepare their bed for sleeping again, which that never made sense to me. If I'm going to sleep in it, why do I? Anyways. <laughs> so in other words, for prepare is to take the matter that's there and fashion it for use. The idea of creation leans into something that the world is being made and prepared and organized for what? For humanity. For Adam and Eve. That's why God gave them dominion over everything. Because He made, He fashioned, He prepared everything for them. But then, God's prized creation sins. Consequently, the creation prepared for them is cursed as well. So what's been prepared for them to rule over will now rebel against them just as God's prized creation is rebelling against God. And now, creation, Paul tells us, is waiting, wearily waiting for God's sons to be revealed. What does Paul mean here? Aren't we saved? Hasn't God purchased us with His blood? Aren't we now sons and daughters of God calling to Him, Abba, Father? The words to be revealed here points to a full revelation, a full unveiling, a full manifestation. I liken it to this. I know the story of so many adoptive parents who have that same, I need two phrases to explain my waiting interim between perhaps signing all the papers and then flying out to or driving out wherever it may be to retrieve them. Jesus, before he dies, says, it is finished. He also told us that He goes to prepare a place for you. The papers are signed, but friends, a global audience awaits to see our vindication. That you and I are sons of God. The Bible uses sons here, ladies, referring to you. Ladies, 
Because in biblical times, sons means inheritance. And the Holy Spirit wants to make clear that even daughters, women are sons in the kingdom with the full expectation of all the inheritance. See, we're not walking and talking with our dad face to face, but he is our dad and he's written us a love letter. He's given us the spirit, which we'll talk about that in a bit. But the world is waiting for this parade, this demonstration, this vindication of the true sons of God standing. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and the glorious freedom of God's children. Now, you all understand those words really easily, so I'll just continue. No, just kidding. The creation was subjected to futility. So again, it was a world prepared for us, humanity. And when humanity rebelled, so humanity's own domain would rebel against them. At the fall of man in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, we read, And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will be <clears throat> eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to the dust. Now, we live in a world, a created world, that has its share, no doubt, of surprising, glorious attributes. Christier and I have a few of those Planet Earth DVDs by BBC. And if you ever want to go to sleep, just turn one on. I mean, just kidding. But if you ever study biology or geology or astrology, and especially from Christian scientists who aren't afraid to throw God into the equation, you always usually end up amazed by some things. David says in a memorable psalm, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. So we live in a very beautiful, amazing world that was once better. (laughs) Was once more amazing. It once didn't have thorns or thistles. It once didn't have parasites, diseases, toxins. It was once so productive that you and I may not need to sweat as much when we worked and gardened it. But Paul says that creation was subjected to futility. Now, futility is that same word that when Paul likely read an old Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, it was the same Greek word used over and over Ecclesiastes, which actually the CSB uses the same English word, absolute Futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. This word futility, one of my commentaries says, is the idea of looking for what one does not find. Hints of vanity, frustration, disappointment. Reminds me a few years ago. This is going to surprise you if you know how many Bibles I have. I lost one of my Bibles. (laughs) But it really bugged me because it was a journaling Bible that I had written up notes and at least studied at least five to eight books or so. They were full of all my notes of studying. I set it aside. I changed my studying habits for a bit, but then I looked for it again. And after a while, after searching my office and my home and all the places, I think I'd leave it several times. My searching became less and less because it was futile. (laughs) 
I knew I wouldn't find it, but the fact that it could still be laying somewhere frustrated me to no end. It's probably hiding under like a few of my socks or something, but the world is like that. It's as if Paul is personifying creation and he's saying it knows its potential. It knows what it it could do and what it could be, but it can't be right now. So it's frustrated about its futility. But God did it for a reason. And it goes back to to what is creation an audience to? God's prized creation. God subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and to the glorious freedom of God's children. In Genesis 3, when the fall happens, what also happens? Jesus is promised. The first coming. We, we looked at verses 17 through 19 in Genesis 3, but if you look at, you know verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, sons of the devil, or the serpent, and her offspring, sons of God, to which God then specifies he's referring to one particular offspring, he will strike your head, which is a fatal blow, and you will strike his heel, which is a blow that ultimately doesn't kill because Jesus resurrects. God subjected creation in hope, in hope that when the promised offspring comes, creation will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. The creation was prepared for God's sons, and it will once again be repaired and prepared for God's sons. Just as God's prized creation rebelled, and then creation rebels against the prized creation, So now God's son are being molded into a bride to be presented to God. And our creation will likewise be repaired and presented. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Until now, a phrase meaning it's still happening to this day. Creation is still groaning, waiting in more ways than one, in suspense, but persevering. But it's very important to hear the connotations of this groaning, believe it or not. I want you to hear the travails, as older translations put in sophisticated sounding, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth (laughs) in pain together until now, so saith King James. But this travaileth is with labor pains. And that is important because what happens at the end of labor pains? A baby. And what of the labor pains? Well, beholding the face of joy, I imagine those once present sufferings do not compare with the glory revealed in the face of a newborn baby. So, friends, you need to know that 2020 is not useless suffering. It's labor pains. The world right now suffers under the weight of sin, under the curse of the fall. But our Redeemer God is subjecting it in hope. Our creation is laboring like that of a mother about to give birth because glory is coming. Glory is coming. Not only that, 
verse 23, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Not only is the weary world rejoicing in the hope of the glory that is coming, so the weary church rejoices. <laughs> Creation is groaning, verse 22. We are groaning here in verse 23. And then actually the Holy Spirit will groan in verse 26, and but His groaning is in the form of interceding for His people. So we see the tension, though, of waiting again. Do you hear how Paul is phrasing that term adoption here? He says, eagerly waiting for adoption. This is the waiting in suspense. The papers are signed, but we await our arrival at home. But beyond our arrival at home, what Paul sees as the consummation of our, of our adoption is, quote, the redemption of our bodies. Now we're going to spend a whole sermon dedicated really on this subject, but for now, this word redemption is the idea of buying back or the release of something after a ransom has been paid or the idea of a deliverance. So case in point, what does sin do to our bodies? It's subject to the fall, but Jesus, Jesus hear what Jesus says about this body. He says it is better that you lose one part of your, quote, body, that's the same word back here in the passage we're at, then for your whole body, there it is again, to be thrown into hell. For those in Christ, He redeems bodies from the effects of sin and the consequences of sin. He buys our bodies back from the fall. He's restoring our bodies, redeeming our bodies to be like those in the garden. Does that make sense? That's what we expect, what we anticipate, and what we lean into, and we know it will happen because, quote, we have the Spirit as the first fruits. Paul actually lays this out more earlier in the chapter, in the middle of verse 13 of Romans 8. Paul says, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So do you see how adoption is connected to the Spirit? Quite plainly in verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So the Spirit is how you know if you're adopted. The Spirit of God's promise to us that what He's doing on the inside, He's going to do on the outside. Glory is coming. Now, part of the name of this sermon is O Come Emmanuel because what this entire text leans into should be a prayer that urges us to pray that. However, I've been using a verse of the song O Holy Night present more in my notes and outlines than you've had it, but we started with a thrill of hope. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Then we talked about a weary world. And then I made up a new phrase because I like to make new things up. <laughs> the weary church rejoices because for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. 
hear this in verse 24 and 25. It says, Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Paul seems to be talking about something here. Hope. (laughs) There is a connection actually to last week's sermon. If you can remember last Sunday to your last nap. (laughs) We, We talked about how in Hebrews, how God has torn the veil. He entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf so that all of us can now enter His presence. The author of Hebrews says in his sixth chapter, he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever. Creation will be redeemed. We will be redeemed. And everything is yearning and the pains we feel and the world's torment right now is not useless, endless suffering, but rather every grief and travail are permeated with expectation. These are labor pains that will translate into the joy and the glory that awaits us because our hope is nothing less than Jesus Christ. And I love how the author describes the hope in Jesus in Hebrews. It is an anchor. It's weighty. It's firm. It's secure. One of my commentaries rightfully states that hope that the Christian has, uh, the black part here, hope that the Christian has is not a mere wish projection but an assurance of what will come to pass. And friends, with this hope filled with this rock-solid foundation, filled with firmness and security, that should strengthen our patience here and now with confidence. To know that the very real pains you feel births hope. It breeds hope and it breeds joy and glory is coming. Our home draws nearer. Our fallen world is waiting in suspense, but it's waiting in perseverance, knowing that it was subjected to futility in hope (laughs) because yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I want to close with a familiar story to you, likely. It's about a waiting old man. A few Days, eight days to be exact, after Jesus was born. Jesus is brought into the temple and an old man was there at the temple. He'd been given a promise though, much like we have been given a promise that, that, our, that great glory will redeem the world and us. And upon seeing the face of Jesus, who had already survived actually so much, a journey of three days to Bethlehem, a birth in a stable, and then waiting for him was King Herod's edict to destroy all the babies to and under in which Jesus would have to evade. Even so, before, Simeon was given a promise. Verse 25 of Luke 2, This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised, for my eyes have seen 
your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. This man was ready to die in peace because he knew glory was coming. Glory was in front of him in the person of Jesus, but the glory that Jesus brought would come at his cross long after Simeon had passed. The Holy Spirit is here and He lives in you and His presence means that glory is coming. Your and my redemption will be final and accomplished. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's so refreshing to know and it's so easy to forget that no suffering is useless. No pain that we feel No problems that we go through are useless. But rather you tell us here and you tell us elsewhere in the Bible to take joy in our trials. Because, Father, all these pains are being used like labor pains. And one day, just like whenever we finally see that newborn baby in the last minutes, hours, or days of suffering is suddenly forgotten, that's how it will be. That whenever we see you face to face and whenever you redeem all of creation, Father, we don't, we won't even have a category to put all of our trials into. Father, it's so grateful that even suffering is used for your glory and for the good of us that some of the things that we enjoy in our lives now were actually the result of suffering in times past. Father, that gives us hope. Thank you that our hope is built on Jesus Christ that He is an anchor for the soul, that He's weighty, that He's firm, that He's not hope that politicians like to sell. He's not hope like a a mere wish, but it's built on something that can deliver. Jesus Christ. Father, we love You. We thank You. We ask that You would use this in our lives as we continue uh, this week, this month, and the years to come. We love You, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.